Welcome to the 4500 Podcast. This is episode 6. I'm Zared Wilson. Wanganui's beachside suburb, Castlecliff, is in the middle of a rejuvenation. The suburb suffered decades of decline throughout the 90s and early 2000s. It was regional decline, as happened over much of the country, but Castlecliff seemed to be hit particularly hard. It lost jobs, services, enthusiasm and attention. How many cities turn its back on its beachside suburb? It happened in Wanganui. But that's all changing very quickly. And at the helm of this turnaround are my guests this week, Jamie and Alan Waugh. They are leading the Castlecliff Rejuvenation Project, which is changing everything from roading upgrades, services available in the district, to changing the perception of the suburb. But as you'll hear later in this episode, Jamie and Alan have plans for much broader social change. You can visit us at the4500.co.nz and you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. Please follow us on Facebook too and share our work. Okay, here's episode 6 with Jamie and Alan Waugh. never wanted to live in a big city with children because I wanted to have time to be a mum and we were looking for somewhere to live and we were thinking New Plymouth because we both surf and um, Jamie had a couple of job interviews up there and then he had a job he had a job interview here without really telling me and I was like he suggested Wanganui and I was like no way totally bought into what everyone thought about Wanganui had no idea where it was didn't know anything about it, never been here. Where did you guys grow up? I lived in Sydney till I was 12, and then my parents went to Fielding, because they were from Fielding. My dad left Fielding was 17 and came back when he was 55. I'd come over here a few times to go surfing at the mole. Um, and, right, so and, you knew of the area? Yeah, well, basically, it's Morgan Street as well. I knew of Wanganoo um, and the mole. And um, that was during the 90s, and it was, it was pretty rough then. Um, like people would get their wheels stolen off their cars at Morgan Street and it had a pretty heavy reputation in terms of a surf break um, and I guess that was right in the middle of Castlecliff being pretty down on its luck. But yeah, I got offered a job here um, and it just seemed right. Um, there was something about the people I met that was different to other lawyers that had interviewed me around the country um, and I think that that's kind of ties into Wanganui. Like Wanganui, there's something about Wanganui that people think slightly differently in a more holistic sense I think yeah maybe, um, maybe because it is slightly easier here to meet basic needs people can actually focus a bit more on um, connection with other members of the community and that type of thing but you had to be sold on this yeah we came over for um, a visit and we came out to the beach and we looked we were just looking on trade me for houses as well and we found this house on Kapiti Terrace and it looked straight off the cliff out to sea and the rent was like how much I'd been paying for a room in Wellington it was a two-bedroom house for our family looking out to sea and I'm originally from Waihee Beach which is idyllic little town two hours from Auckland and bottom of the Coromandel and that's you can't really even find a house to rent there now and it was just amazing to me that you could do that here um, and the process of actually finding that rental was really interesting because real estate agents found out Jamie was a professional and we were a good young family and they were really trying to discourage us from living in Castlecliff and we are like, there's a beach here, of course we're going to live in Castlecliff, please show us houses. What were they saying to you? Oh, it's rough out there, you don't want to live out there, you want a nice house in like St John's Hill or Jerry Hill and, or... There's gangs, there's crime. There's gangs, there's crime, there's... Just all of the lies people tell about Castlecliff because um, they're not true. <laughs> we had real estate agents actually refusing to show us places. Like, mm. they, they wouldn't show us places in Castlecliff. Um, but then, we, yeah, this place on Cafferty Terrace was just incredible. Like, I'd, I guess I always had a dream being a surfer of being able to live in a house that overlooked the ocean and kind of thought maybe I'd be able to do that when I was in my 60s, you know, after a lot, lot of hard work and then just to be able to do it then and there, um, it was just basically a dream come true. What did your Wellington mates think when you told them where you were going? <laughs> it's pretty funny. People just really think Wanganui is terrible, even if they haven't been here. I mean, I think that's changing heaps now. But we definitely had to, like, argue the point that we lived here. And even, like, probably more so from my Waihi Beach background, people did not get it. 
they were just like, why would you go there? And people just, people didn't even know there was a beach here. Like, you know, everyone in Waihe Beach loves the beach. As soon as I said, we live right on the beach and how much it costed, oh, oh I can see why you're there. But you know, Wanganui's neglected the beach so much, people don't know there's a beach because we don't direct anyone out here because it's been left. It's just that also people have come here and visited and seen how amazing it is. Um, even then, they when you hear them talking to other people about how great Wanganui is, so oh, it's actually it's actually pretty good. Rather than it's like there's this um, lack of pride. Uh, it's like you can't for some reason be a champion of Wanganui. You can't be really passionate about Wanganui. There's something in the New Zealand psyche about it almost. Um, I don't think that's true within Wanganui. Not within Wanganui. Everybody in Wanganui champions it. It's just outside. There's a narrative there that's been built up by certain people, probably from within Wanganui as well, certain ex-mayors. And it's just given us the wrong kind of publicity. I think think Wanganui people are the biggest champions, and I think that it's amazing how passionate everyone is about their town here. And when we first met, we met so many people in the Castle Coffee community in a really short space of time. And what was really, really clear is that they were living in a way that people weren't living in Waihe Beach or Wellington. But they're wandering around each other's houses to have coffees every morning in this kind of slow pace of life. And they supported each other and they'd deliver fish to each other and they'd, you know... Old school New Zealand. Yeah, old school, like it was a real old school New Zealand kind of thing. And just sort of living simply but being quite content in their little forgotten backwater of Casper. There's something um, romantic about the underdog as well. <laughs> and not, not just with Wang, Wanganui to the, to the rest of New Zealand, but within Wanganui, mm. Castlecliff had its, its reputation. Yeah. yeah, I described it like that to my friends. It'd be like, you know how you think Wanganui's crap? People in Wanganui think Castlecliff's crap. So that's how much of an underdog we are. <laughs> yeah, people thought that was crazy. But they'd just come and have a beer when the sun was setting on any given night of summer and be like, oh, okay, I get it. Yeah. And you're paying less for your house than you pay for a room and rent in Wellington. It's, it's not rocket science. <laughs> so you came here and you, you loved it straight away? Mm. I loved it straight away. I struggled a little bit just because I, when we moved here, I could see the potential of this place, absolutely. And I just thought, this is just going to happen. Like, hands down gonna happen it's just crazy that it hasn't already happened and we were here for about three years and I didn't see anything happening and it was interesting because I was just like didn't imagine I'd have to do it did you assume someone else would be (laughs) yeah I just thought it was a no-brainer I just thought you know eventually the council's going to cotton on that this is a good idea and someone will pick it up and then I saw something in newspaper saying um use it or lose it um, Progress Castle of Advertising we need help with the Duncan Pavilion the, the council's looking at getting rid of it and I was like what? that's not moving in the right direction so I went to the AGM and they said what we need is someone to be the booking officer and then we can continue looking after the building and it won't get bulldozed because it was kind of like the council couldn't justify spending money on it because it was out here you know? and I was like I'll be the booking person that's going to save this building and you look at it now it's getting utilised more and more and it's we got $10,000 of funding and got the interior of it done up and then the council committed to fixing up the outside and it's a great community asset that we've still got but yeah once I joined Progress Castle Cliff I just realised oh I've got this charity here that I can use to try and change perceptions because I still couldn't believe the way people thought of Castle Cliff so I, the first thing I did was get funding to do a movie night, and I did. I got old couches and put them in the, um, in the pavilion, put them up on different levels, and made a little movie theater. And hired a popcorn machine and made it really vintage. It was really cool. And then I, I moved on from that and saw that. One of the things people always bagged Castlecliff about was the driftwood on the beach. And I'm from a pristine beach, you know, and. And I actually find it gives it a lot of character. It's like, it's a different type of beach. It's wild and it's windy and you've got to brave the elements to go and enjoy it, which is cool. It's kind of like an adventurer's 
it's kind constantly, of spot. Constantly changing. It's constantly changing. And then I was like, let's reframe this. This driftwood is, it, some of it's beautiful. Um, and it's just, it's a resource. So I decided to do driftwood sculpture competitions and got heaps of support from businesses down Hebs Road. And the pet care place gave us heaps of prize money for it. Mars. Toyota. Um, Toyota gave us the money for the last one. Yeah. Um, and we got really big prize money to try and attract really good works of art so that we could get good photos of it and good videos of it and just put that online on Facebook and and in the newspapers and just show people the magic that you can make out of things. Um, And it was awesome for kids as well. Like we had a kids section and we had so, like the first year I did it was the the car park was just full and we had free fish and chips for anyone who entered. So that was really cool because it was just all the community together having fish and chips. And the entry fee was hardly anything, so it was available to everyone. Really inclusive, and we got awesome stuff out of it. Um, actually, starting the Progress Cars for Facebook page was a massive perception changer as well, because we'd put those photos from the Driftwood Sculpture Competition up there. We'd put sunset photos up, because it's just people don't see it when they're not coming out here, when there's this perception that it's terrible. They don't come out here and see the beautiful scenes that we get to see on a nightly basis and we're able to share that really easily using that resource of Facebook and now it's great because anything that's happening we put it on there and and it's an instant spread of knowledge and yeah it's it's really built from those starting few events and at the same time she was Ellen was organizing out of studios at the Duncan um, and so that was again using the Duncan it's it's an amazing building like you just don't find community buildings that you can are right on the waterfront, basically, that anyone can hire out for next to nothing. Um, and so we had a pop-up cafe, Jack. That was a real step forward, too, because yeah. we got lots of people from town coming to that. And you'd people would walk in and be like, oh, I haven't been out here in 20 years. This is amazing. And they're standing on the deck looking out over the sea, and you're just like, yeah, come out more often. <laughs> so from those single events you kind of got some encouragement to go bigger. So we had a little kid, so only one of us could go to Progress Castle meetings yeah. at a time until Charlie was old enough to be looked after by someone else. Um, and so I'd been at work all day and Alan would go up to Progress Castle Cliff and work on, like in hindsight what Alan was working on was changing the perception of Castle Cliff. There's actually not much wrong with Castle Cliff at all. Um, there's lots of things right about it, but people just didn't get to see it experiencing it experience it and those initial things brought people out here got things in the paper got things online where you know people were picturing babies getting shot and running flights down the street when actually the reality is Tui's singing in flax bushes and sunsets and children eating fish and chips on the beach um, and it was just getting it in front of people's perception because I think Wanganui had turned its back on Castlecliff because of the decline that had been let happen over the, say 40 years previous it was something that Wanganui was probably a little bit embarrassed about. Yeah, so that's probably a good point to talk about that. Mm. What happened to Castlecliff from, you know, this photo here with thousands of people at the surf club yeah. and thousands on the beach in the 70s, probably? Yeah. What happened over sort of the 80s, 90s, early 2000s to let Castlecliff get to this yeah, so, point? It's multiple... Different stories. Yeah, I, I wasn't here at the time. I, I spent a bit of time in Castlecliff in the 90s, um, early 90s. Um, and I'm definitely not an expert on it, but from talking to the likes of Des Waterhee and Lynn Douglas and the people who have been around for a long time, Castlecliff started off as a place where people had batches who lived in Wanganui. They'd come. It was like, a holiday spot for, for Wanganui. It was a holiday spot for Wanganui. So people would have their batches and that type of thing and come out in summer and the holidays um, and spend time at the beach. And that's when you know, that kept on going through the 60s. The industries grew, grew up on Heads Road, and at some stage, and there were lots of owner occupiers. Like in its heyday, Des has told me that you know, the amazing thing was everyone owned their own houses, they raised their kids in their, those houses, and you had that real kind of community spirit. When investors started buying the properties and renting them out, um, and then people started losing jobs as the industry sort of faded through the 80s um, on Heads Road. You didn't. You had much more transients. You had people losing their jobs seasonally, um, moving in and out of the community. 
um, landlords that weren't looking after the houses, whereas the owner-occupiers would. And so slowly but surely, I guess the pride of the people living in the suburb, their pride wasn't um, based on where they lived. That was diminishing, um, and with that lack of pride, people just don't put effort into where they live. It's almost like a cycle of depression on a, um, on a social level. Like if everyone's feeling down and nothing's happening, everyone just gets further and further down and let their houses fall to bits. And I think as the houses got cheaper, more and more absentee landlords bought places up, started putting people in there who were, their rent was being paid straight out of benefits. They weren't getting looked after. They were just being used by wealthy people. And yeah, it's just all the things that happen with that kind of impoverished situation sprung up. So drug use, um, violence, and kids not going to school. It sounds like it got pretty dark. Like some of the stories I hear of the 80s and 90s um, was running fights down the street. And I remember surfing at Morgan Street in the 90s and people being assaulted um, in the middle of down the beach and cars being taking the wheels off them and the windscreen smashed and that type of thing. And no one bothered to intervene in that decline no, over well, those well, years? Yeah, because no one was... There were people. There was a guy, Jeff, who's still a local out here, who used to do things like if someone dumped a car at the beach, he'd put it on the back of his truck and drag it back and dump it in their lawn. Um, <laughs> There's always been passionate people uh, yeah, out here. And, yeah. and Progress Castle Cliff has been going for a long time. I think it was early 90s that they started with Ted Frost. Yeah. So there has been, there's always been people gunning for it it's, and being yeah. and championing it. It's just they've gone through some kind of dark patches where that's been hard. And no money was spent out here. Like once the port kind of shut down and the guts got ripped out of the port, this town just for some reason turned its back on Castle We read a management plan from the early 2000s that was pretty similar to what we achieved, not as exciting as our our plan that we got from the public but it had similar ideas in it and it would have costed heaps of money and just none of it had been ha- had been done none of it got done so it was an attitude thing and that's yeah when I I'd become involved um, we we're seeing all this potential and the 10-year consultation document so it would have been whenever the 10-year plan was happening um, had all of these different silos of money for things that touched on Castle Cliff, like they talked about Mill Road and Fitzherbert Ave extension and the North Mole and the boat ramp and all these things, you know, were in the 10-year plan that we probably should do. But Castle Cliff, I think, had been in 10-year plans before, but it just never happened because there was no will. I mean, no one actually wanted to make it happen. When did what we know now is the Castle Cliff Rejuvenation Project, when did that first? It started with just a submission. We, Jamie and I liaised with various groups. Well, that, we wrote the submission first. We, we, we wrote a submission to the council just about how you've got these different pots of money, you need a big plan to get more bang for your buck. So if you're going to do up the South Spit, think about the boat ramp at the same time and think about what's happening at yeah. Rangiora Street because you might actually save yourselves a lot of money um, rather than having these disconnected piecemeal kind of things. And that was taken really well by the council and you know, great idea, great submission, but nothing much happened. And then I think we did an impassioned plea about this asset that was not being utilised. It was Jenny, uh, Jenny, John, Jenny, and Jenny Duncan and Jonathan Barrett invited us to a meeting to talk about the submission. And that meeting was basically the birth of the rejuvenation project. It was where it became clear that someone was going to have to tie those silos together and work out exactly what was going to happen here and how it was going to happen. And... We've been quite careful in our original submission. We basically pointed out the opportunity, but how you make the most of that opportunity wasn't clear. And I get, I get reminded all the time when I'm in the surf that, you know, you've been here nine years, only another 10 years is when you become a local. And when I've been here 10 years, someone will say to me, oh, no, 11 years is when you become a local. And I've always had that thing that, look, I'm one person in Castlecliff, or we're one family in Castlecliff, but what's good for Castlecliff is up to Castlecliff. So we started going out and trying to find out what Castlecliff wanted. Um, Des Water, he gave us the names of all the groups that had been involved in, I think, the linking group, which was a thing that Des had run a few years earlier, that connected with all the different community groups that were operating in Castlecliff. And so Alan mainly um, went around talking to those groups. Um, and this was from the Matapo Community Trust, who are um, helping Black Power 
what they're part of Black Power and helping the youth of Black Power try to um, be a bit more productive in their life through to Kohanga's uh, school principals, um, random characters, like lots of different people that were interested in Castle Cliff. And basically we got, what we got back from those 30 documents is, or 30 interviews with those groups was this massive passion for something to happen. Um, they'd just been banging their head against a wall they felt for decades by that point and they'd get a consultant in to do a big plan and it would look great and then nothing would happen. So we got those responses and then took them to the community at public meetings to see, um, first we asked the community what they would prioritise in terms of big aspirational goals in terms of what would be good for Castle Cliff um, and that was from connectedness through to beautification, through to recreation, through to like enforcement of laws. Um, and those were really well attended meetings and the community basically started off with these big priorities and we worked down to asking people what their specific ideas were like individual projects that needed doing and again there was a massive range of information came out and we've still got all the information and we go back to it when the direction of the whole thing is becoming less clear because we always go back to what does the community want Um, and there's times when like I personally wouldn't choose the same thing as what the community has chosen but we go back to the well this is what the community told us to do it has to fit into this progression of community engagement that's been key to its success hasn't it yeah having it come from the people rather than paying six figures to some consultant from yeah. Auckland yeah like I, I, I don't want to bag out other processes of rejuvenation or regeneration but generally they start with $200,000 in consultant space and it's someone who is for hire and they will turn up in any town in the country or probably any town in the world and run some fancy meeting um, and say this is what the community wants. They don't actually live in the community. They don't know that there's certain people not at those meetings and that are the reasons why those people aren't at those meetings and that maybe they have to go and talk to those people privately. And they don't really care. They're doing it for money. And they're good at what they do, but the, thing, the reason I think this has worked is that the community has gone to the council and said, we love our suburb, it can be great, it can be a great asset for all of Wanganui and even the greater region, and this is how you achieve it. Can you hold our hand to make this happen? And the council, in their, in their wisdom, um, has said, yeah, it's about bloody time. We'll, we'll hold Castle Cliff's hand and let them direct their own future for the greater good of the entire district. And it's like it's, representation of democracy is supposed to work in that way. The people pulling the strings at the top are supposed to be doing what the people who can vote asking them to do but we've really taken out a lot of the difficulty in between those two points of what the community wants and what can be done so yeah I think that's that is what's made it successful and it's just the amount of time like I think there's been so much weight building up behind this like to the point that New Zealand Good Beach Guide which is New Zealand's most popular guide of beaches the guy who wrote it who's one of the best selling beach authors in the world actually has a go at the Wongan District Council in his review of Castlecliff Beach wow So this is how he describes Castlecliff Beach. One word, grim. It doesn't help that you have to drive through the appropriately named Gonville, one of Wangaroo's bleakest suburbs, to get there. But when you do, it's as spartan an experience as you could imagine. It is essentially the main town beach. It stretches from the North Mile for several kilometres north, but no effort has been made to beautify the foreshore or public amenities along this forsaken stretch of sand. And regardless of any excuses, this is a major town resource gone begging. The main access point to the beach offers access to miles of empty coasts, and is far enough from the detritus coming out of the mouth of the Wanganoo River to offer the possibility of safe swimming, plus the surf can be really good on a big southwest swell. The reserve area behind and above the beach has some sculpted landscaping, but not enough to make any real impact. You really miss the mark here, Wanganui Council. The only amenities are a big car park and toilets, which were locked when I was there. I agree, apart from the gomble thing, that's, that's rough. It's a bit harsh. Yeah, well clearly this guy is an outside person um, who yeah, obviously doesn't know how great a place gomble is. <laughs> <laughs> um, but like, you know, when you're getting, this is a book that if anyone comes to New Zealand they want to find a cool beach to go to. And he's not a politician at all. He has no reason to no be saying anything about the council except that his observation is that they have not done a good job. His name's, Tim, his name's Tim Ranger and he's um, done beach guides all over the world. And he's, yeah, to, for him to be saying what a waste, it's just, it's just ridiculous. It's amazing it got that far. Um, and then he's got photos of him in there of how beautiful it is. You know, when something gets that bad, 
you know, you can ignore something for quite a long time. But, you know, after a while, so people out here are paying rates. It's an amazing asset. We've got a beach and everyone in New Zealand loves coming to the beach. Year after year, the council's own recreation survey says the number one thing is the one we know people want to do is go to the beach. And not a cent has been spent out here for decades. So you started this big picture approach? Yeah. Going out to as many people in the community as you could? Yeah. What, what did the community want? The master plan basically involved increasing, improving the perception of Casper. And that was the basic um, beautification types of things. Making the streetscape nicer, planting, controlling the sand, making the buildings look nicer. The community also didn't want to become Mount Monganoi. It was one of the clearest things that came through is that Castle Cliff is a unique beachside suburb. We've still got the original beaches. We have, we don't have big vacant beach houses where someone flies in in a helicopter for the Christmas holidays or you have a book of beach that's $500 a night and people want to keep that. So they want something different and nationally significant um, so that it fitted with the Castle Cliff way of life and, and world view. Um, for want of a better word. They wanted a cafe, they wanted um, a hub. They wanted a, they wanted a community hub, a place where people could meet, um, where they could get to know their neighbours, where they could run into each other and build that connection. Um, they were interested in sustainability. They wanted support for the community gardens. They wanted kids to be able to rule the streets. They wanted it to be safe. People talked about CCTV and they wanted the police to actually come out to Castlecliff sometimes. They really just didn't want to be forgotten, but what the main thing they wanted is they wanted something, you know, anything, um, a, a start. Um. The most amazing thing, I think, is that you did all the planning, you got all the ideas, and then you actually did it. Yeah. <laughs> like, I've seen a handful of towns, suburbs do this, and they got to the planning point, and they had the shiny 100-page document. Yeah. And it sat on a shelf. And that's, uh, again, I think it's because it's a tipping point thing. Like, it's... um. Like when the guys were down there pulling down the power wires to do the Rangiora Street stretch, they were absolutely loving it. They're like, can't believe this is happening in Castlecliff. There was the, the guy doing the paving was doing it on the weekend, leading up, leading up to Christmas, because he wanted it done. There was some scepticism too, though, right? Some people said that this isn't going to happen. You're not. Gonna no, be able yeah, to do this. I, I had we had people stand up at some of those meetings um, and say, "You're all talk." These young people, they won't get anything done. Yeah, I quite like a challenge, um, and. <laughs> Like it got, they did get to points where things like the, the background work of keeping these wheels grazed, keeping the whole thing going, and keeping that political support and support within the council keen on the whole thing is it's a lot of work. And I'd said the whole way through, like, I'm putting my neck on the line for this. These are my neighbours. I'm getting them to attend meetings. I'm making big promises for them. And I'm going to be really gutted if this doesn't happen, as in I'll feel betrayed by the council. And there were times where things got close to not happening. And we had to have pretty serious conversations, <laughs> me and the other people that were involved in actually getting it done. Just quickly for listeners who don't know, what has, just runs quickly through what has happened in the last year, what has been achieved? Yeah, so the last 11 months, so the main street leading to the beach is Rangiora Street. It goes from Cornfoot Street down to the Surf Club, which is the main beach for Wanganui Town, um, where the Surf Club is and the Duncan Pavilion. 11 months ago, the beach was, in a, I mean, the, the road was in a pretty bad state of disrepair. It was bleak. Um, it had an old winds building that was boarded up and covered in graffiti. It had rubble um, from collapsed buildings. It had yeah, weeds growing everywhere and, you know, spin effects growing, blowing down the street, like actual tumbleweeds. Um, <laughs> there was a light in that darkness, which was Ivan Vostner and his yeah. gallery. Him moving there was a a great turning point, actually. Ivan did all the pottery on Lord of the Rings. Um, so any cup you see in a Lord of the Rings movie got made by him. And he saw the potential of that street really early and he bought the old supermarket and set up his gallery and started planting succulents on the corner. And, uh, yeah, so there was, there was this crazy potter doing his amazing pottery in his crazy Dr. Seuss succulent garden. Um, and when we went to design it, um, we had help from a guy called Craig Pocock, who's an urban designer at Christchurch, because we needed some artistic impressions to tie all the community ideas together. And he was walking around talking about, oh, I've done this town, I've done this town, I've done this town, and we put native plants in and we do grasses and that type of thing. And he walked past Ivan's garden and he was like, what is that? <laughs> and I was like, that's Ivan. And we even talked to Ivan. And Ivan just got excited about succulents and amazing... Um, plants and how well they grow out here um, and Craig said that's it 
if your community wants a nationally significant gateway, eccentric gateway to your wild windswept beach, let's do a whole urban block of succulent plants. You're not going to be able to do that anywhere else in the country. And there's, that, there's that kind of freedom. To, it's like, and Craig, he was about to fly out to the States and wasn't doing any more work in New Zealand because he moved with his family to the States. But he came here for a weekend and just saw the potential and he's like, I want to be part of this. You're in the cheaper suburb in New Zealand. You can't go any lower. And when you're building from nothing, there's an amazing freedom to do something quite amazing. And the community was so on site because something was actually happening. So what we've got down there now is yeah. um, that succulent, so the, the succulent planting from the corner has gone down the street, down through the centre of the street. To take things back a step though, uh-huh. like we had started this liaising with the council and started the whole plan for the rejuvenation and everything started out public meetings and those store, those shops along the opposite side of Evans was up for sale for quite a long time and it was a mortgagee sale from the bank and Jamie heard a pretty a scary rumour about a certain group wanting to buy it that wouldn't really be developing the suburb very well like would be going the wrong direction so we put an offer on that was pretty ridiculous was, yeah they wanted to turn from a, bro- a brothel in a herbal highs shop at that time herbal highs were a great way of making money in new zealand and um well sex sells and they <laughs> they said it was perfect there was, so we heard that yeah. and we were like nah not, let's put an offer not on. around the corner from where our kids play in the park no. and so we put an offer on the building and it was really really low and the bank said no and I was cheeky and said, leave the offer open. And two months later, Ross Watson, who is one of the real estate agents who has been behind Castlecliff for a long time, said, called me up and said, you bought yourself some commercial shops. We were a bit worried at that point because we'd forgotten that we'd done that. <laughs> we were like, oh, we've got to do something with them now. So, so I've had skin in the game, I guess, for quite a while. Like, so that's, again, that's, I really believe in Castlecliff that that was, there was no, no backing out when things became difficult. Yeah. It was, yeah, we had to try and make this keep going, make this work. But so now what we've got on that street is the start of a nationally unique gateway to our wild, wild beach like the community wanted. Mm-hmm. The amazing succulent planting that Evans got in his corner now goes down um, through the centre of the road um, and there's planting either side of the road with curb and channelling and um, tiles or pavers and that type of thing with uh, what they called speed not speed bumps like raised platforms um, to slow the traffic down and some the power wires have come down there's some new street lights which are quite nice um, there we've got um, I think yeah the community's hub has been um, set up in the Citadel like Charlotte Melsa started the cafe the Citadel there and she's really really passionate about hospitality and how good hospitality can increase community connectedness, building those real face-to-face relationships within a physical space in a, in, a time in, in a time when everyone's interacting on Facebook. So the local kids can go there and grab glasses of water and play in the playground. Or you can come there for a coffee or you can come there for an amazing gourmet burger and craft beer. She has tried to make a place and I think she's succeeded that's welcoming to anyone from the community. Sorry about her dog. Um, welcoming from anyone in the community and yeah, so that, that's there now. And again, the way, it, the way it looks, like Alan and Charlotte together and developing the way that place looks is it's pretty unique. Um, we wanted it to be something that people had to slow down and look at when they went past. It needed to look really interesting. And so I think we achieved that. And so, Jamie, you're really big on um, this kind of marriage of private enterprise, public ratepayer funding yeah. and charity. Well, yeah, so... The rejuvenation project, and I've, I've talked to other people about this who uh, have bits of paper, degrees and stuff in local government and community development and that type of thing. And it, this project being community-led is quite cutting edge in the way that it's been run. So the community goes to the council for the, the um, hand to be held, but then the community is going to contractors like PowerCo and that type of thing to say, well, we're trying to do this work. How much will it cost? If the council goes to those contractors, they pay full price. If the community, especially the poorest, well, one of the cheapest communities in the country, goes to um, a large supplier of anything really, and um, says we're trying to make this community better, they get a better they get a better price on it. And the staff are more passionate about the work they're doing because rather than just doing their boring day to day, they've got kids coming up to them on the street while they're working, saying, "Well, wow, it's amazing. Thank you so much for doing this in our suburb." So the council puts in the money for things that private enterprises are unlikely to fund 
and then you see an increase in the quality of life of the community and the people in the community start talking about it so the businesses in the community want to be part of this because they're also members of the community. So we had the council put in money for roading and then private enterprise put in money for the citadel and then from that we could go to four regions trust and say look what the community with the council is doing here. If you put in some money we can keep this snowball going and get private enterprise involved. So we just got $100,000 from the Four Regions Trust to revamp the surf club. And I went to um, Glenn Wadsworth at W&W, which is Wanganui's, one of Wanganui's biggest construction companies. And he has his office on Heads Road, just in Cliff. And again, he was right on side because this was something that was really good to do. And he could use his skills and his organization's skills to turn that $100,000 into a lot more money. And once that asset is up and running, that will be able to return funds into the whole rejuvenation project. It's it's about leverage, like to use a really capitalist kind of term, but we're using leverage in a social way. It seems value for money for all parties concerned. Yeah, well, it's a win-win. Win-win, win-win. Win-win, win-win, everyone wins. And, and you know, the guys working for W&W or Powerco or whoever um, are actually doing the physical work. A lot of them live in Castlecliff, well, at least live in Morganui. And now they've got a cafe that they can bring their friends from Napier or Auckland to come to and say, I've talked down these power wires, I've been part of this. Um, so it's really is, and it, it gets rid of that dynamic of, oh, the council's doing this. I mean, to the council, it's not the council doing it. It's the council using their skills and experience to hold the Castlecliff community's hand. And the Castlecliff community involves all these local businesses. They'll be a part of the community as well. So the result of all of this has been uh, more people coming out here, yep. more people moving here. Um, house prices going up mm. yeah. and I guess just a change in the way people see Castlecliff and its reputation. Yeah, like I guess, you know, like, yeah, like I said before, all really that needed to happen was a change of perception because it was all here. Um, it just needed to be taken, Monganui needed to realise what it had um, and take some pride in it and, you know, and be proud of it. And now people are coming out here for the first time in 20 odd years and saying, that's right, I love the beach. I grew up playing on this beach. I've got great memories of this beach. Where are all the gangs I've heard about? Where are the kids getting shot? Oh, well, that's not true. Yeah, no, no, it's not, because I've been here now. Um, and they go and tell their friends. And people who live here, you know, they can hold their head up high that they live in a great place. You've also been quite aware of um, not, as Castlecliff grows and improves, not pushing castle, traditional Castlecliff people out. Yep. of the suburb, pricing them out or yeah. whatever. How do you balance that? Yeah, it's... Um, um, I think we're really, we're really aware of that because it's... it's I'm, I personally am really aware of that because I come from a coastal town where they have been pushed out. It's quite hard as a family to rent. You can't really rent a house in Waihi Beach because it's all holiday homes that are book of batches. And it wasn't like that back It then. wasn't like that when I grew up there. So it's um, been gentrified almost. It's been gentrified and I don't, I hate the word gentrification because it's, I think it's, I think it's really important to be aware of that process because it, there is some bad elements to it and it's... Gentrification is a tried and true way of, yeah, like you can read theses on gentrification normally in an urban context of um, somewhere is impoverished and um, you know, really low rents, all the problems of poverty, the artists move in, um, generally homosexuals follow artists, so this is the way it is in um, any thesis you'll read, and then um, professional families that are attracted to the art and the culture that's there by those first people move in, they go there, um, start buying up the houses, um, rents go up, the artists have to move to the next place, followed by the early adopters, um, and then often followed by the middle middle class's kids who then gentrify that place as well. Um, so how do you not let that happen? Yeah, so why that normally ha- happens is because the artists and the early adopters don't own the houses. Um, so as the places get more desirable to live in, um, the prices go up, the rents go up, and they... Yeah, they, they can't afford. They can't afford to live there anymore. So, like from the start of this process, I was. Compl- I grew up in Surrey Hills in Sydney. Um, when I moved there, there was lots of houses with, you know, floors missing. There was. I remember people outside my house with heroin needles sticking in their arm as a child on my way to school. My um, school had massive high gates. You know, it was inner city derelict kind of place to live. It was the last of the low in terms of inner city Sydney. And over my time living there, I saw it completely gentrify. 
and there's a point in that gentrification process which is really really great you know when the young families are in there and there's the artists and it's really culturally vibrant and it's about holding it to that point and when we started this process we were telling people buy a house and lots and people did and you know there's people in Castlecliff who have very rarely worked over their entire lives um, and they've managed to own houses and they've done it because they love Castlecliff and they really and they know what they have um, and those people are really benefiting I was looking at a Facebook post this morning um, from the first article that we had in the Chronicle about the rejuvenation project and there's all these comments of people saying I never thought I'd be able to buy a house I've just bought my first house and I'm so glad it's in Castlecliff I live here with my family um, I love Castlecliff and I always have and just multiple comments of people saying that um, so hopefully a lot of people have a lot of the people who make this place great do own their own houses. Like the houses in, Mon- in Castlecliff are still the cheapest houses in New Zealand. They're just more expensive than they were two years ago. And they're going to keep on going up in price because it's an amazing place to live. And the problem is much bigger than here. You know, like, it's easy to find the negative element of a project. Um, there's no way for us to control that. And I think it's better that we've done what we've done than not. But it's a systemic problem and Mm. government's not tackling it. And I think it's fair enough that private people should be looking at it as well. Like it's everyone's responsibility. And we have actually thought about it a lot because we see that as a big, a criticism that is valid. It doesn't mean that what we've done is bad though. I think it was really important. Like many of our friends have lived here for, for years and years and it felt hopeless for a while, it really did. So now the, the energy here is really positive and changed and we get to see each other a lot more because we've got the cafe down the road and I walked down the street the other day behind a family that were, you know, from a different demographic than me and I just overheard them talking about the streetscape and they were just like, it's so choice and like so stoked on it and I was like, yes, that makes me feel better because I'm actually quite worried for for families being moved out. I don't want to see that happen because one of the best things about here is our diversity. So we're having many conversations at the moment about how to make the balance be there. It's such a hard one to tackle though because Mm -hmm. our society's not set up for it. So trying to counter it is pretty hard when you've got limited resources and, and you've got to think of a whole new model yourself because the powers that be are not thinking of those models. So um, it's a really, really good point to bring up and a really good point to think about as well. And we're very aware of it. Like you said, like, when we moved to Castlecliff, Castlecliff was old school New Zealand. And old school New Zealand was really egalitarian. Like, whether you were on the benefit or whether you're a lawyer or whether you're a freezing worker or whatever, you lived down the street and you could borrow a cup of sugar. And look after each other's kids. Uh, and if the kids were going down the road on their tricycle or whatever, keep an eye on them. And it's really cool now, like Charlie, our daughter, can walk a couple of k's in each direction, a number of eyes on her that know her. Um, it's, it's really, really cool. You know, and, um, but that, to keep that, you need to keep the diversity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, we need to keep you, the heart here. We need yeah. the heart here. And, yeah, you see places like Wahi Beach that has there's a still a, um, There's still a heart there, but it's smaller. Yeah. Like It's got a population of, what, 1,500 permanent people yeah. and 80% of the houses are, um, have absentee owners who only use them as beach houses. It's like a massive ghost town. There's small heart, there's definitely heart in that local population, but they're just surrounded by all these empty houses and people can't move there and rent. I think what will help Castlecliff is it's quite a vast suburb. Like, mm. It's, yeah. it's going to take a long time for area. it to gentrify. It's got a huge area yeah. and lots more empty space. But if we're thinking about it at this early stage and considering it, and looking at ways to curb that. Yeah. I think it's really great because if we can achieve a rejuvenation that includes everybody, that would be a fantastic thing and it would be newsworthy and it would be an amazing story because there's real heart to that and I think it speaks to people because it's like important. People know that's important. Now society is sick, like in Auckland, with the average homeowner only five houses and people sleeping in cars. It's just utterly wrong. It's not the way New Zealand's supposed to be. And we're all responsible for it. Everyone who buys into that system is responsible for people sleeping in cars. And like the idea is, with it would be amazing if Castlecliff could buy it as a community, um, or Progress Castlecliff as a charitable organisation could buy up large amounts of the property now 
and help people help people live in those houses um, you know, through various schemes yeah through various schemes so if you're contributing to the community um, positively you get a roof over your head mm. um, and that could because you know it doesn't matter how much money you've got that doesn't um, dictate how much you contribute to the community and I think quite often people that have less are probably more likely to share with the rest of the community and mm. become more so integrated and interdependent with the rest of the community it's overriding that natural human want you know you need to look at what's important and override that and when you override that you see the freedom that's there there's so much freedom you can just if you if you've got yourself under control you are free to really make a massive difference and people need to realize that it's a mindset it's it's a mindset if you feel like people operate from a position of scarcity they think they have to fight over everything to keep themselves surviving um, but the reality is in New Zealand we actually have the ability to live with massive abundance and as soon as you day to day experience life abundantly you realise you can change anything. I've cultivated that belief in myself during this process and I can't hold on to it all the time but I think that's what has happened in the Castle community as well is we can actually change this by just trying not just not and being, being brave. Not being, yeah, not being scared. Being oh. brave and and looking at problems in a new way and looking at them like you can tackle them. Because when it's a big problem like that, it's really easy to go, oh, that's too hard and it's got nothing to do with me, when actually it's got everything to do with everybody. It's a great place to go into what I wanted to talk about last. So all indications are, well, it's, it's already successful, but all indications are this is going to be hugely successful over the next decade. Yeah. You want this to be a blueprint for other parts of the country, yeah. other parts of the world. Yeah. I see it as a massive problem in the West in general. I don't, can't speak for the East but, or any other sort of culture, but in the West there's a feeling of scarcity. You know, you're living in a multi-million dollar mansion in Auckland and you're still scared. You still don't think you've got enough. You need more cars, you need more things. And because of that, you're spending your time doing silly stuff. Like you're at work for too long you're not spending time with your kids and your kids are going to grow up all more mental than you are and and the only issue is there is your mindset like if you actually realise you've got everything you're not going to starve you know we've got um, you've got abundance and from there you can help other people and by helping other people you actually get way more back than anything else you could possibly do I'd like the vision is that the rejuvenation project can make the day to day experience of life better in all ways for all people in the community. Um, whether that is from a better cup of coffee or a smile on the street um, through to some kind of you know, greater understanding of life. And I'd like to see systems set up in Castlecliff that assist people to do that. Um, there's lots of ideas around at the moment um, in terms of how that could function, but like Philip Holden, who runs Live for the Land and runs the Matai Street Community Garden, um, has a big vision in terms of food being free. I think in a place like Castlecliff that vision can be um, met fairly easily. There's lots of vacant land. Um, you can see permaculture gardens all over the country and all over the world where massive amounts of food are grown. Um, but what often happens is it's done in a separate community with like-minded people rather than being planted within an existing community. And there's not often the distribution frameworks um, a proper organised distribution to get the produce out to the people who need it. Um, the other side of it is shelter. So if you do that, if you have free food for everyone in the community, um, you meet that low level need. If you can have cheap housing, cheap good housing for every member of the community, um, you meet another low level need. And then suddenly those people can start thinking and spending their time doing things to better the rest of the community. I'm really excited about what the Matapo Development Trust is doing with um, educating their people, like starting off with numeracy and literacy kind of stuff and then moving into horticulture and carpentry. I think that Castlecliff could operate a centre for social, cultural and spiritual innovation that would take people from doing community work through the, Department of, uh, through the Ministry of Justice, so court order community work for criminal kind of activity. They do that within this framework and then do numeracy and literacy and then they carpentry and horticulture and as they succeed up through that and have their needs met, they can start thinking abundantly and test their ideas and learn how to do good things for other people within Castlecliff. 
in Castle Cliff is it's old school New Zealand it reflects the New Zealand population if you can do it here you should be able to transport those ideas to other places around the country and around the world because there are a lot of other places in similar situations yeah. and someone said in a, um, we got a document from the 70s or 80s and someone had said in that if you can turn around Castle Cliff you can turn around Wanganui and if you can turn around Wanganui you can turn around New Zealand and I think it's really really true Castle Cliff's got all the problems that anywhere's got but what it has I think a lot of other places don't have is well, at the start of the rejuven- rejuvenation process we couldn't get much worse we had nowhere to go but we had the passion to have a go and yeah with nothing to lose and all to gain it's yeah, pretty exciting for the people involved in it you've really thought about everything eh from the paving to the to the massive yeah broad picture mm. well I think that's yeah it's important that you do that otherwise you miss really really important elements and down the track you go was that good or was that bad you have to really pay attention to what's happening and what's important uh, yeah uh, uh, the people involved um, in actually making this happen constantly question is what we're doing right and is it good for everyone or are we doing this for our own motives and that's why we go back to what the community's told us and then like yeah I can see why people see a flash street like a done up street in the middle of not flash houses um, and say what a waste of money and that's from people from outside Castle Cliff what we hear from people within Castle Cliff is like wow that's not Someone. that's not even many people from outside of Castlecliff. That's a few voices, and I can see the motivation behind that. Yeah. Like it's important to see someone else's perspective. I can absolutely see that. That's coming from the right place, but coming from within Castlecliff, the cross section of people here is va- far more varied than people think, and that streetscape and cafe has changed so many people's lives for the better. And from all sorts of demographics. And you have to spend time with the people in order to know what they need or want. So it's, e- it's really easy to look at the negative side of things and, and make assumptions from outside. But we know the people and we know that this has been really good and we know that we're going to continue, continue to benefit everyone. And some things are necessary for the overall good. Making the street look nicer changes the way people think. Changes the council's view of Castle yeah. Cliff. If you change changes the, the funding opportunities. And changes you, the yeah. pride level out here. Changes the optimism. Changes the energy. If, yeah, if enough people believe in Castle Cliff, Castle Cliff can do anything. And that's where perception comes in.